Please remain standing for the readings of God's Word. Uh, today's passage is in Ecclesiastes 7 on page 556 in the Bibles around the room. I'm going to read in Brazilian Portuguese today because all languages are used to worship our diverse God and that we are all created equally in his image, and we want to recognize this. Ecclesiastes Echi. O bom nome é melhor do que um perfume finíssimo, e o dia da morte é melhor do que o dia do nascimento. É melhor ir a uma casa onde há luto do que a uma casa em festa, pois a morte é o destino de todos. Os vivos devem levar isso a sério. A tristeza é melhor do que o riso, porque o rosto triste melhora o coração. O coração do sábio está na casa onde há luto, mas o do tolo na casa da alegria. É melhor ouvir a repreensão de um sábio do que a canção dos tolos. Tal como o estalo dos pinhos debaixo da panela, assim é o riso dos tolos. Isso também não faz sentido. A opressão transforma o sábio em tolo. E o suborno corrompe o coração. O fim das coisas é melhor que o seu início. E o paciente é melhor que o orgulhoso. Não permita que a ira domine depressa o seu espírito. Pois a ira se aloja no íntimo dos tolos. Não diga, por que os dias do passado foram melhores que os de hoje? Pois não é sábio fazer esse tipo de pergunta. A sabedoria como uma herança é coisa boa. E beneficia aqueles que veem no sol. A sabedoria oferece proteção, como faz o dinheiro, mas a vantagem do conhecimento esta. A sabedoria preserva a vida de quem o possui. Considero o que Deus fez. Quem pode endereitar o que ele fez torto? Quando os dias forem bons, aproveite-os bem. Mas, quando forem ruins, considere. Deus fez tanto um quanto o outro para evitar que o homem descubra alguma coisa sobre o seu futuro. Nesta vida sem sentido, eu já vi de tudo. Um justo que morreu apesar da sua justiça, e um ímpio que teve vida longa, apesar da sua impiedade. Não seja excessivamente justo, nem demasiadamente sábio. Por que destruir a você mesmo? Não seja demasiadamente ímpio e não seja tolo. Por que morrer antes do tempo? É bom reter uma coisa e não abrir mal da outra, pois quem teme a Deus evitará ambos os extremos. A sabedoria torna o sábio mais poderoso que uma cidade guardada por dez valentes. Todavia, não há um só justo na terra, ninguém que pratique o bem e nunca peque. Não dê atenção a todas as palavras que o povo diz. Caso contrário, poderá ouvir o seu próprio servo falando mal de você. Pois em seu coração, você sabe que muitas vezes você também falou mal de outros. Tudo isso eu examinei mediante a sabedoria e disse, Estou decidido a ser sábio, mas isso estava fora do meu alcance. A realidade está bem distante e é muito profunda. Quem pode descobri-la? Por isso dediquei-me a aprender, a investigar a buscar a sabedoria e a razão das coisas para compreender a insensatez da impiedade e a loucura da insensatez. 
descobri que muito mais amarra que a morte é a mulher que serve de laço, cujo coração é armadilha e cujas mãos são correntes. O homem que agrada a Deus escapará dela, mas o pecador ela apanhará. Veja, diz o mestre, foi isto que descobri ao comparar uma coisa com outra, para descobrir a sua razão de ser. Sim, durante minha busca, que ainda não terminou, entre mil homens descobri apenas um que julgo digno, mas entre as mulheres não achei uma sequer. Assim, cheguei a esta conclusão. Deus fez os homens justos, mas eles foram em busca de muitas intrigas. Quem me é como o sábio? Quem sabe interpretar as coisas? A sabedoria de um homem alcança o favor do rei e muda o semblante carregado. Esta é a palavra de Deus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Praise be to the Lord Almighty who made the heavens and earth and all living creatures. Father, forgive us and help us to understand your holy word. We are sinners and we need you. You said in your word in the chapter that I just read, be not overly righteous and be not overly wicked. The one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Help, O Lord, our full heart to fear you and to please you. I also pray for Pastor Kyle. Let the Holy Spirit speak through him. I also pray for our brothers in faith in Brazil. In the name of Jesus, amen. First, you were born, and you spend your whole life striving. And then, the end. It turns out it's good news. Well, good morning, Living Stones. How are we doing today? Pretty good. That was beautiful, right? Portuguese? I need to start speaking some Portuguese. My name is Kyle. If you're a guest here, welcome to Living Stones. Living Stones is a place where you can seek God. You can ask real questions about real life. Um, to, you're welcome here, even if you don't believe what we believe. You're welcome to ask questions. What we like to do at this church is go through the Bible. We believe that God has spoken to us and revealed truth to us in the Bible. And so that's what we're doing right now. And today is a very important day for you to have your Bibles open because I'm going to go verse by verse And if you're not following along, it's going to be hard to follow along with this sermon. So grab a Bible or your phone. If you have a phone, scroll to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Um, if you open up a Bible that we have around the room, that's on page 556. Now we're going through this book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is a book about reality, not fantasy. It's a book about real life. And I think it's much needed for our culture because you watch commercials and you hear um, advertisements and you th see things on social media. And it's all about like, you know, uh, life without limits. Um, this is what you need to do to just uh, have the best life now and you can be happy. And, but Ecclesiastes looks at the hard things of life, the harsh realities of life. And so far in the book, it's been mostly cloudy with a few rays of sunshine. But today that's going to change. Hallelujah. It's going to be mostly sunny from the rest of the book forward with a few uh, clouds here and there. 
And so that's a good thing for us today. I've been enjoying the sunshine. I hope you've been enjoying the sunshine too. And it's actually very fitting because we're turning into more sunny part of the book. Picking up in chapter 7. Now, uh, chapter 8 verse 1 gives us the thesis statement for the entire chapter 7. So if you're new to the Bible, in the Bibles there's big numbers and little numbers. The big numbers are chapters, little numbers are verses. And it says in verse, chapter 8 verse 1, Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. In other words, wisdom matters. When you have wisdom, it matters for your life. Your face is turned from a frown, you turn that frown upside down. That's what wisdom helps you do. Wisdom matters for you to be able to approach life and the positives and the negatives to be able to have such a posture where your face will shine, where you'll be in a pleasant place, a surrendered place, trusting God and joyful. Even if if circumstances um, ought to, to make you sad, you can be joyful in the Lord. But it comes through wisdom. And my main point for today is wisdom matters. It's a double entendre because chapter seven is just a bunch of Proverbs, matters of wisdom. But the reason why he gives us these matters of wisdom is because wisdom matters. So we're going to have three basic points. um, And we're going to look at uh, wisdom in in three basic angles. And they're going to be slides on the screen. So the first slide on the screen is going to walk us through our first point. Wisdom matters in the face of death. Because it teaches us how to live with the end in mind. Wisdom matters in the face of death because it teaches us how to live with the end in mind. So chapter 7, verse 1 says this, A good name is better than precious ointment. The day of death is better than the day of birth. So a good name is better than precious ointment. Precious ointment you could put in the word perfume or cologne or body spray. And he's saying it's good to have a good name that's better than having smelling nice. Now, in this cultural day and age, they didn't take a lot of showers. There wasn't running water. So people just stank, okay? People just stank. And the way that you would cover up your stench is with perfume or with a cologne. And, you know, some of you guys do this now. You're middle schoolers. And you get that Axe body spray. And you're just, I'm good. I don't need to take a shower, Mom. I'm good. No, you need to take a shower. Middle schoolers, take a shower, okay? Every day, maybe twice a day. That'll help you out. But they didn't have that back then. Um, They had perfume. And so it's basically saying this. It's good to, um, it's good to smell good. It's good to have an outward appearance that looks nice. But you know what's better? Having a good name. Having a good reputation. And in fact, it's a bad thing to look like you have your whole life put together on the outside. And to smell nice and to look nice, but as uh, David Gibson says, to be the equivalent of nails scratching on a chalkboard when you walk in the room. You know those people. You might be one of those people. It it reminds me of, uh, in Harry Potter, there's these characters uh, called Dementors, and they suck the life out of you. And it's better to look all disheveled and to look like your life is a mess and to be a life-giving presence 
than to look like you have your whole life together and to be a dementor to people. A life-sucking presence. And so he's saying, so what should we, re- what should we really care about, care about people? We should care not as much about outward appearance. We should care about inward character of the heart. That's what God's people care about. God has a different standard of beauty than we do. And it's in the heart. And so then he goes on and he says a really weird phase, phrase. The day of death is better than the day of birth. You're like, I thought we were talking about happy things, Pastor. Okay, notice what he does not say. Your, he does not say, your day of death is better than your day of birth. He doesn't say that. He's essentially saying, the day of Beth is a better instructor than the day of birth. A casket is a better preacher than a crib. Because when you look at a casket, you contemplate the real things of life. When you look at a crib, you're like, oh, it's cute. And so he unpacks this idea further in verses 2, 3, and 4. He said, so therefore, it's better to go to a house of mourning or a funeral home than it is to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. He says, it's better to go to a funeral than it is to a wedding. I took a class from, uh, he's, he's a pastor, but he's also a professor. His name is Tony Slavin. And he said, I would rather bury people than marry people. And I was like, why? He was like, listen, when you're marrying people, nobody's listening to you. They just is like, can this guy get on with it? I want to party. I want to have a good time. But when you bury people, you have a captive audience. People are contemplating the real things of life, what really matters. He says the living will lay it to heart. The secret to living is contemplating death. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of the face, the heart is made glad. He's not saying it's, sorrow is more fun than laughter. He's saying sorrow is more formative than laughter. Because when you can face the real things in life, you, you develop a depth of character. And what this passage is calling us to be, is it's calling us people to be people of depth, not superficiality. And too much of the church in America is just addicted to superficiality. Fake smiles. Um, this was captured well in The Simpsons with the character Ned Flanders. Just somebody who's like, everything's always good and just always smiling. And it's, there's no depth. But God is a God of infinite depth. And he calls us to be people who, as we seek him, we can be people who can understand the goods and the bads of life. And we too can become people of depth. So in verse 4, he says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth or joy. The wise people think often about their death. Foolish people only think about their next party coming up, the next vacation, the next holiday, the next escape. But wise people contemplate death. When's the last time you contemplated death? 
When you contemplate death, you're going to think about the real things of life and what really matters. Fools only think about what's coming up. A fool sits in a funeral and starts thinking about his bracketology for March Madness coming up and what he's going to be doing tonight for St. Patty's Day. But the wise man sits at a funeral and contemplates what really matters in my life. This was a, this is picked up in the um, secular business leadership book called Seven uh, Habits of a Highly Effective Person. And habit number two of that book written by Steve Covey was begin with the end in mind. And this is what the Christian ought to be doing. The Christian ought to be living with the end in mind. That's what wise living looks like. So I want you to imagine something for a moment. Imagine a funeral. And you show up, and you're in a suit, you're dressed really nice, you're in a dress. And as you're there, pastor gets up and says a few words. They show a slideshow with some music. People in the audience get up and start sharing thoughts about your life. Because you realize that that funeral is different than any funeral you've ever been to because it's your funeral. What are people going to say at your funeral? Have you ever thought about that? What are the slideshows going to capture? Are they going to stand up and say, Susie really loved her knitting. John really loves his outdoor adventures. Are they going to stand up and say anything at all? Will there even be people who show up? Or are they going to say things like, Johnny really loved his Lord. When I looked in Susie's eyes, I always knew that she cared. I never met anybody more hospitable than Susie. Her house was always open to people who needed a place to stay. What are people going to say at our funerals? What do you want them to say? The casket is a better preacher than a crib because the casket says to you, what do you want them to say? Start living for that now. And don't you see how these verses two, three, and four connect with verse one. When you're living in light of the end, then you will live for a good name. You will live for a good reputation. You will live in such a way where your character shows and your character matters. And so wisdom in the face of death teaches us to live with the end in mind. To ask the question, why do people die? And is there a cure beyond death? And the good news of the gospel is we die because we're sinners, but the cure is that God has come to save us from our sin. We must live with the end in mind. If you're only living for the here and now, the life of the party, you're going to be a shallow person. And your funeral is going to be an unfortunate event 
But if you live with the end in the mind, your funeral will be packed with praise. And it won't be a day of sadness, it will be a day of worship. That's what we ought to be living for as Christians. So then we go to the next aspect of wisdom. The wisdom in the face of adversity. Wisdom matters in the face of adversity because it teaches us to accept reality, not escape reality. Our culture is fantastic at developing new ways to escape reality. But Christians are called to be people who accept reality. And this is found for us in the next series of verses, a handful more verses. Verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. In other words, it's better to have a friend that's willing to rebuke you than to surround yourself with friends who are always singing your praises. Does anybody have some friends in here? Do you have anybody in your life who will look you in the eye and rebuke you? Receiving a rebuke is never fun. Like I've never like received a real rebuke and been like, man, I feel so much joy in my heart that you said that to me right now. (laughs) But you see, we try to escape reality a lot of times because by surrounding ourselves with um, fools, surrounding ourselves with shallow relationships in which people only sing your praises. But God's people ought to be people who speak truth and receive truth because we have real friends. And this is what we're called to be as a church. Then the next verse explains what it's like to have surround yourself with people who are only singing your your praises. Verse 6, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is laughter of fools. This also is vanity. And this is describing a time when you had to heat up your food over an open fire. And and they said, this is ridiculous. To surround yourself with, with people who are only singing your praises is as ridiculous as thinking you could heat up a pot of water with just a tumbleweed. You light that tumbleweed, it'll catch on fire really quick. And it lights up really fast, but guess what? It burns up and it has no sustaining power to help you. So if you surround yourself with people who are always singing your praises, always agreeing with you, then you're just surrounding yourself with people who who will give you no sustaining power in this life. But if you surround yourself with people who are willing to teach you, willing to rebuke you, willing to speak truth to your face, then they will give you sustaining power in the midst of adversity. And that's how you can accept reality. Does that make sense? We need these kind of friends. Verse 7, he goes into a different form of facing adversity. Surely oppression, actually I think it's better, extortion drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. So this guy is saying, hey, look, I know you think you're wise, but don't kid yourself. Even the wisest of humans can be corrupted by a bribe. And when do bribes come? in times of adversity. And so he says, you need to accept reality and not give in to that. Wisdom will help you accept reality and not give in to bribes. And bribes are going to come in different forms. People are going to ask you to take their side, even though it's the wrong thing to do. And so the wise at heart is willing to accept reality and not to pursue escapism through accepting bribes. Then he goes on. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So better is the end of a thing than a beginning. Um, Think about this in terms of house projects. It feels very motivating to start a house project, doesn't it? 
like, you know, we put in floors in our house. We had to peel off all the baseboards and all this stuff. Man, we felt so good when we started that project. Like go to Home Depot, walking down the aisle. I'm going to do some stuff today. My wife is going to think I'm hot. It's going to be great. Then you get home, and then you realize you didn't buy all the stuff at Home Depot, so you got to go back to the Home Depot. You come back, and then you're like, let's get to work. You know, I think I need a sandwich. I'm going to make myself a sandwich. And I need a nap, too. My tummy, you know, I need to be fresh-minded when I go after this. Eventually, your house is just full of unfinished projects. <laughs> so you had a lot of motivation to start them, but to finish them, that takes a lot of work. But how good does it feel when you finish that project? Man, after we put on those baseboards and painted them and touched them all up, I, I literally grabbed a drink, and I sat on the couch, and I just stared at the baseboards. And I was like, <laughs> this is a wonderful thing right here. It feels good to finish something. The end of a project is good. You, you made it through. Now, what does finishing something require? Patience. And patience is the very thing proud people don't have. One of the opposites of patience is pride. Because pride wants things now. And when things don't go the way you want, you either bail or freak out. You bail out or freak out. And so patience, just like finishing a project is better, patience is better than pride. Being able to understand that things don't always happen on your terms or at your timeline. But if you can have patience, you're going to be a much more satisfied person. That's what wisdom in the face of adversity teaches you. Um, Then he says in verse 9, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Are you angry? Are you an angry person? Anger lodges in the heart of fools. Our Lord God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we as humans are made in his image, meaning that we're made to also be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But when we let anger lodge in our hearts, we're dehumanizing ourselves. We're becoming animals. God's people ought to be people who are slow to anger. And unfortunately, the church is not known for this. But we ought to be. Now, you only have to deal with this kind of anger when you face adversity. And anger lodges in your heart when you can't accept reality. (laughs) But when you can accept reality and adversity, you actually gain more patience. Are you a child in here who has a lot of anger? Who throws temper tantrums? Jesus is asking you to ask him for help to be patient. Then he has in verse 10, a really fun verse for us. Say not, Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Have you ever said this? Man, times aren't like they used to be. I wish we really were just set back 50 years, 100 years. I mean, it was so much better back then. You know what? I really feel bad that you have to raise kids in this day and age. You ever said that before? You ever heard that? It's not from wisdom that you say that. 
Larry Osborne says that we all tend to look at history through rose-colored glasses. Meaning we tend to look at history and we tend to, to see it through the positive things and forget about all the negative things. The wise person can face adversity today because they know that, yeah, the world has been broken for a long time. Laura Hildebrand in her book, Unbroken, captures this very well. The book is about a guy named Louis Zamperini who fights in World War II. But at the beginning of the book, she sets the stage and she talks about the genocide that Hitler and the Nazis were doing, which was pure evil. But she also juxtaposes it to the genocide that was happening in the United States at the time when we were killing babies with uh, birth defects and disabilities. And she just does a really beautiful job. It's hard to read that chapter without weeping through it because she's like, we as Americans are so focused on their evil, but we tend to glance over the evil that was at hand here. And so, yes, you can look back at history and appreciate different generations, but let's not kid ourselves. There's been sin in every generation. To think that a time was better than the time is now is to do one of two false things. One, it's to overlook the evils that existed then. You might say, I want to go back to the 1800s. I want to go back to the time when, you know, people really cared about the United States and treated people really well. But guess what? There were still fathers abusing their children and mothers abusing their children. There were still broken relationships. There was still oppression. There was still racism. There was still division. There was still murder. There was still theft. There was still sexual immorality. All that stuff existed just as much then. We even look back at the Victorian age, you know, like the 1700s in the United States, and people were all prim and proper. But do you know what those preachers did during the Great Awakening? Do you know what their sermons were titled? Jonathan Edwards' sermon was titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And his main illustration was God holding you like a spider over a flame. Because he was saying, y'all think you're prim and proper, but your hearts are evil. And when he, he, did, he read that sermon, and when he read it, hundreds repented and came to Christ. Because they knew it. There's never been a day and age where people aren't evil. <laughs> so one is to overlook the evil of an age. Or two, it's to ignore the evils of a different kind. So sometimes you might be better in one category of evil, but there's another kind of evil that might exist. So there is no good old days. The only good old days is in Genesis chapter one and two. And that's like a page and a half in your Bible. That's the only good old days. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, there's been no good old days. Racism, corruption, violence, anger, power-hungry people, oppressing other groups of people. Like, it's just been over and over and over again since then. And so the wise in heart can look at history and look at their present time and see the adversity of their present time and be like, yep, that must have changed. People are evil, but God is good. That's what the wise at heart do. Okay, so the next one we get into is uh, verse 11. It says, wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So here he equates wisdom to money. He says, just like money can get you out of a bind and provide you some protection, 
But just like money can sometimes get people off the hook, sometimes money is the difference between somebody going to jail and being bailed out. The same way, wisdom can get you out of a bind. Wisdom can preserve your life. Wisdom can be your protection. Why? Because wisdom matters. It matters. So pursue wisdom far more than you pursue money. Then he says in verse 13, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? He's like, now think about all this. God has determined the world to operate in a certain way. Doesn't matter how hard we try to change God's ways, we'll never do it. God is in control. And the wise at heart in the face of adversity admit and have the freedom to admit that even though I don't like my present circumstances, God is in control. And nothing can change God's mind if God's going to do what God wants to do. We live in God's world, not our world. And so in verse 14 and 15, he says this, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. and the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So in this section, he says, look, the wise in heart can look at their time and say, if I have blessings, it comes from the hand of God. And if I'm facing adversity, guess where that also comes from? The hand of God. Job says when he loses everything, he loses his family, he loses his his possessions, he loses his house. He says, God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Those who are wise in heart have that as the song as their heart. God gives and takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. To try not to acknowledge that is a, is a way to try to escape reality. But the wise at heart can accept reality. So uh, Jim Collins wrote a leadership book called Good to Great, and he talks about in it uh, how he interviewed a guy named Admiral Stockdale, James Stockdale. Who, have you heard of this guy? He was prisoner in Vietnam War for seven years. During his time in prison uh, camp, he was tortured repeatedly, um, and he never knew it was coming day in, day out. His legs were broken twice. He was just beat up constantly. Um, and so Jim Collins sits down with him, and, and he hears the story. He's so moved by the story, and Jim Collins says, hey, let, hey, tell me this. Who are the people who didn't make it out of the prison camp? Stockdale, without blinking, says, oh, that's easy. It was the optimist. And Collins said, wait a second. That doesn't make any sense. He's like, yeah, it was the optimist. It was the guys who said, we're going to be out of here by Christmas. Christmas would come and go, and they would still be in prison. It was the guys who said, we're going to be out of here by Easter. Easter would come and go, and they'd still be in prison. Stockdale says, they died of a broken heart because they couldn't accept reality. Christians can accept reality. Now, Stockdale shows us that the human spirit is a resilient spirit and has the ability to persevere through great things, but Christians ought ought to be able to persevere through more than the average person, and here's the reason why. Because we can accept reality not as just um, something that we're facing, but as something that God is giving us by the hand of God. We can accept adversity as something that God is still in control of. And we can know that no matter how hard times get, God still loves us because he gave his son for us. And if he's willing to give us his son, then we can trust that no matter what happens, no matter how hard life is, he has our good in mind. 
That's the only way we're going to be able to accept reality. And that's what the preacher here calls us to. To accept reality. That's what wisdom in the face of adversity shows us. And so have you felt the temptation to give up? Have you felt the temptation to abandon God and to just start hating him because you don't like how your circumstances in life are going? Be wise. Remember that the good comes from God. So does the bad. But also look to the cross. Remember that God always has your best interest in mind. So then wisdom in the face of human limitations is the next section. And so if you look at the back half of verse 14, it says this, um, God has made the one as well the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So he's basically saying, God is the ultimate wise one and you think you're wise, you're going to pursue wisdom, but at the end of the day, your wisdom has limits. It has limits. You're never going to figure out everything that God wants to do. Okay, smart people, we all tell you, know-it-alls, you're never going to be able to know it all. God is the one who knows it all. And so he says, here's an example of, of some weird stuff I've seen. In my vain life, I've seen everything there is a right... I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. He's like, I've seen this. There's righteous people who, who think that they're, or who are trying their best to pursue God and do the right thing and be good people. And here's what I've seen. They die young. Meanwhile, the gangsters and the crooks and the people hurting people are driving sports cars and living it up. You ever be upset by this? It's a mystery of, of God. And so the conclusion is to think, okay, well, if that's how it is, then what do we do? So this is the preacher's answer. He says to us, therefore, do not be overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? So he basically says this, listen, if righteousness doesn't guarantee you a long life, why are you so overly righteous? Why are you so concerned about your personal righteousness? Don't be, the word is excessively righteous. Like, stop taking yourself so seriously. It's not going to change how long you live. <laughs> relax. Wisdom in the face of human limitations teaches us to relax. Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care about righteousness. He certainly does. But he wants his righteousness, not yours. You're not as good as you think you are. And the people who are like overly righteous, typically religious people are people who are just thinking about like, all they're doing is playing over and over in their minds, their performance in their head. They, oh man, I really messed up that conversation. I'm not doing a good enough job reading my Bible. You, you know, you can't enjoy worship because you're always concerned about if you're doing a good enough job. You can't enjoy a good meal because you're worried about eating too much. You can't enjoy a nice glass of uh, beer or wine because you're worried about being considered a drunk. Like you're just, you can't relax. You're always worried about your speech. I mean, I struggle with this because I'm a preacher and I say all sorts of stuff that's bad from the pulpit. And I could drive myself crazy replaying every sermon in my mind. I said something terrible I said in the first service. I didn't mean to say, but I said it. And I could be up here being like, man, I'm such a terrible person. And God's like, relax. I know how messed up you are more than you know. I mean, by the way, by trying to become righteous, how righteous are you really going to get in this short life? Like, how sanctified are you really going to get? Sanctified just means more like Jesus. Not that much, let me tell you. We believe in the doctrine. This is the doctrine of total depravity. It's the doctrine that no matter um, 
how hard we try, every aspect of our thought, will, and emotions is infected in some way by sin. You know what that means for you? You're going to think, like, you're going to be so righteous doing all the right things, and it's still going to be plagued with sin. Like, here's how I noticed it in me this last week. I was praying with some pastors, some really intense conversations. I was praying with pastors. I said this long prayer, and I literally heard in my mind myself saying this. Man, I hope those pastors heard that because that was a great prayer. (laughs) How wicked is that? I'm here supposed to be focusing on God, and I'm like, focus how other people are thinking about me? That's so wicked. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, so what does this mean? Look at verse 20. It says this, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Keep trying, buddy. You're doing a great job, but you're still a really big screw up. And God knows. And guess what? He loves you anyways. That's why our symbol is a cross for heaven's sake. Because he knows how messed up we are. So relax. Stop taking yourself so seriously. God's not impressed with you. There's real freedom in that, isn't there? Because then you can come, you can just, you can stop being so focused on yourself and you can start being focused on God. And now the opposite of this though, in verse 17, if the natural response is, well, well, if that's how it is, then let's live it up, baby. Verse 17, be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So also don't be like, well, God's have it all. Let's just have a good time. We're going to be sinners anyways. Might as well live highway to hell. Let's have a good time. Let's party. And he's like, no, that's foolish. You'll die. If you live like that, you'll die before your time. You'll ruin a lot of relationships. You're going to um, make a bad name for God, and he might kill you. So um, don't be overly wicked. You know, don't pendulum swing over to the other side. You see, the problem with both of these guys, he says here in the next verse, it's good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. He's saying the one who fears God will take both of those things into consideration. The person who's overly righteous is a person who's always thinking about themselves and the person who gives themselves to wickedness is always thinking about self but the wise person is thinking about God. So in other words, it's just basically stop thinking about yourself and just think about him and just let the cards fall where they fall. Just concern, if you just put your mind towards God, you don't have to worry about yourself because that'll align. So relax, take a breather. The next part, verse 21. Do not take to heart all the things that people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Wisdom in the face of human limitations understands that all people are sinners and say stupid things. So when somebody starts talking smack about you, relax. Who cares? You yourself have talked smack about other people. So like, get over yourself. Any bosses in here? Any people who have people who report to them? You're going to hear your employees talk trash about you. Relax. You've talked trash about your bosses before too. And you're probably talking trash about their employees to your bosses. So like, relax. Okay? Anybody dealing with family conflict? And then somebody, you find out that they said this, and then you're like, you said what to me? And you like start freaking out. You pick up the phone. I'll tell you what. Like, relax. Any of you get into like social media wars? Like, oh, he said what? No, he didn't. I'm going to get him. Like, 
Stop. That's ridiculous. It shows that you don't have a good understanding of how messed up your heart is, nor how messed up other people's heart is. And if you could just admit, like, man, our hearts are messed up, you'd be so much more free. Because when you hear criticism, you'd probably be like, well, there's probably truth to that. Okay. And even if it's not true, you're like, well, we all say stupid stuff. Okay. Like, don't you want that kind of freedom? But live into that freedom. Then the next verse, it says, verse 23, all this I've tested with wisdom, I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off, deep and very deep. Who can find it out? So he's basically saying, look, wisdom matters. It's really good. But at the end of the day, we have to just understand that we as humans have a limitation to our wisdom. We're going to try and try and try to be wise. And it's still going to seem like it's evading our reach because God is the only one who knows everything. And so can you just accept that? It's a lot of pressure to try to be a know-it-all. It's a lot. If you're, if you're like, maybe you're newly married or you're a young parent and you're just like, I just got to do such a good job. Just got You're so worried about doing a good job. Kind of relax because you're never going to figure it all out. <laughs> Trust that God knows what your kids need and do the best you can and with the tools you have, and that's it. But if you try to have the knowledge of God, you're going to drive yourself crazy. So relax. Be free. And then he gets into some confusing verses here. He says, verse 25, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. He's like, so basically, I know he's speaking to us as somebody who has experience. He's like, I've pursued wisdom to its fullest extreme, and I've pursued pleasure to its fullest extreme. And here's what I found out, verse 26. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes from her, but the sinner is taken by her. He's like, here's what I found is worse than death. A relationship... Um, he's using hunting language, a relationship that you're being pursued and someone's trying to lure you in, but at the end, it's just a trap. And he's here speaking as a man about women, but it's also true for women about men. He's like, what's worse than death? Wisdom will show you that what's worse than death is being caught up in a nasty relationship. Some of you know what this is like. It's worse than death. Um, and at first it feels fun. Because you're, they're pursuing you. And it feels good to be pursued, doesn't it? It feels good to be pursued. It feels good to be wanted. But at the end of the day, they don't have your best interest in mind. They want to trap you, take control of you, mistreat you, and hurt you, maybe even kill you. And so he says that the wise person avoids this. The one who's trying to please God avoids, it, avoids this. So what this means for us is wisdom shows us that in terms of relationships, to be slow with giving our hearts away. That we, need, we have a responsibility, number one, to not be these kind of people that are just trying to take advantage of our spouse. And number two, to be slow to give our hearts away to people that are pursuing us. Are you being pursued right now? Are they pursuing? Just be slow because you don't know if you're going to get into a trap. So make sure. Have godly counsel around you speak into that. And some of you are caught up into bad relationships because there's a part of you that's kind of like a sadist, the part of you that enjoys the pain. And this passage is, is saying, that's not good. That's not from God. If you're in that kind of relationship, 
you might need to consider getting out. And if you're the perpetrator of that kind of relationship, you need to repent. And if you're somebody in this room in that, you need to come talk to us as pastors because we want to be here for help and guidance. Okay? Then he says in verse 27, now just please hang with me on this because you're going to think that he's like, he hates women, but he doesn't hate women. I'll tell you why. It says, behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding this one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has repeatedly, but I have, I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this is also, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but that they have sought out many schemes. So he's basically, it sounds at first like he's saying this. Like I, I started to look out there to find if anybody was wise and I found one man among a thousand. And then I looked out there again, I see if, if I could find any women who are wise and I found zero women. That's what it sounds like. He's not saying women are better than men. He's actually using a form of Hebrew poetry called parallelism. And it, he says one thing and then he expands on it and adds to it. So he's saying this. It, it would be like, the sky is blue. The sky is royal blue. He's adding to it to emphasize his point. So essentially what he's meaning is this. I set my heart out to search for wisdom and I barely found any. In fact, among humankind, I found none at all. Men and women. He's not speaking against women. He's, say, he's just adding to this idea. There, let's be honest. There's hardly any wisdom in this world, in mankind. And that's what he means in verse 29. He summarizes it. This alone I found. God made us to be upright, but we've sought our own schemes. Doesn't this fit with the theme of the New Testament? What Paul says in Romans chapter 3? No one is righteous. No, not one. No one is good. No one seeks for God. Um, together, we are, have, we are worthless. That's what he says. Where is this coming from? Passages like this. He's basically saying, you're not as good as you think you are. Your heart is totally corrupt. Even in the best things we do, they're selfish motives. We try to pursue wisdom. God made us to be wise, but we constantly go our own way. And we need to just be able to accept that. Wisdom helps us to accept that we're not that wise. That's wisdom. Now, wouldn't that be freeing for you? Imagine... You see, the most trapped people are the people who try to live life outside of their limitations. You ever see on like The Voice or um, American Idol, those people who are auditioning and their vocal cords are just terrible and they are terrible singers, but they think they're great. And their mom told them they're great and they're up there and they're singing, but they're terrible, right? It's funny, but it's also sad because those people are trapped because they're not willing to accept their limitations. Freedom is accepting your limitations. It is a false gospel to say you can have life without limits. I'm pretty sure when you read the Bible, it's God saying over and over again, hey dude, you have limits, you have limits, you have limits. Accept your limits and you'll be free. And the limit is, is that no matter how hard we try, our hearts are still going to wander. So we might ask the question, well, if wisdom matters so much, then how then can we be wise? Well, it's not our own wisdom that we need. It's wisdom from above. We need an alien wisdom. And the wisest person in the Old Testament, many think this person wrote the book of Ecclesiastes is a guy named Solomon. 
And people came from all over to heal Solomon's wisdom, but Solomon still went very astray and led his kingdom into ruin. And in the New Testament, we're still asking that question, how then can we be made wise? And another character shows up named Jesus. And he says to his crowds that are coming to him, something greater in Matthew chapter 12, something greater than Solomon is here. I am the wisdom from God. And if you come to me, you will be made wise. You see, the saying is bad company ruins good morals. But wise company produces wise living. And so as we live in the presence of the wise one, we start to adopt his heart. Have you ever noticed that the people that you hang out with, you start to talk like them? You start to laugh at the same things as them. You start to love the same things as them. We're, we're, um, we're like sponges. And the good news of the gospel is that God has come down with the wisdom from heaven to us. And if we draw near to him, we'll soak up what he has to offer. And so church, we get to relax. We're not perfect and you'll never will be. The cross is our logo. And so if you're here looking for a church that won't, that won't sin against you, that won't hurt you, you can leave because it's not going to be this church because we're a bunch of broken sinners surrounded by the perfectly wise God, Jesus Christ. And as we draw near to him, we'll start to absorb his heart. So that's your call. He says, abide in me and I in you. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. When you set your gaze towards Christ, you'll be able to relax. You'll be able to be free. You'll be able to... Um, Accept your limits. You'll be able to live with the end in mind. You'll be able to accept reality. And that will be a beautiful and pleasing aroma to God. Let's pray. God, thank you for wisdom. Like, thank you that, like, we just admit, we don't have a lot of it in this room collectively. We're very small on our wisdom chart. <laughs> but we know that with you and in your presence, our hearts can be changed. And so I pray that if there's people here who have just been taking themselves way too seriously, that you'd help them to relax. And if there's people here who have just kind of said, you know what, then forget it, I'm gonna live wickedly, that you would just call them to stop doing that and to get their eyes on you. I pray that you would help us to be a people who really live with the end in mind and live for things that really matter and not try to escape reality all the time. Would you do this for your glory and our good? Amen.